The reading this morning can be found in Genesis chapter 2 and it's on page 2 of the Bibles in front of you. And we're reading from verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Well, thanks, Susan, and good day, everyone. My name is Scott. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the ministers here. Always uh, nice to be in church with you. So, if you could keep your Bibles open in Genesis chapter two, and uh, you prayed already for me, but I'd like to pray for you before we begin. So, let's do that. Heavenly Father, conscious that before me today there are people uh, in all sorts of different circumstances. Some who are married. Uh, happily and some otherwise and uh, some who are single some happily and some otherwise and I just pray that the words this morning would be of use to us all in different ways amen 
Jerry Seinfeld, you know Jerry Seinfeld, famous New York comedian with the big hair, uh, he once said that the difference between being single and being married is in the form of government. You see, when you're single, he says, you're the dictator of your own life. I have complete power. I can give the order to fall asleep on the sofa with the TV on in the middle of the day and no one can overrule me. When you're married, you're part of a vast decision-making body. Before anything gets done, there are meetings. Committees have to evaluate the situation and that's when things are working well. And that's what's so painful when things aren't working well. You get impeached and you're not even the president. Well, today in our uh, little holiday series called Truly Human, we're going to be thinking about uh, the topic of marriage. And uh, next week, Ben is going to be helping us think about the topic of singleness from the scriptures. And hopefully they'll be more profound than vast decision-making bodies and falling asleep on the sofa with the TV on. It's fair to say in this uh, series called Truly Human, we're not really starting from first principles. We haven't got a blank sheet of paper and asking... uh, what is the fundamental thing about being human? What are the most important things to say? I mean, your first three questions probably wouldn't be, is gender fluid? Should we persevere with marriage in the 21st century? How should we think about singleness? But each of those three topics are very timely for us today. And so we need to bring the wisdom of the scriptures to bear upon these aspects of being human. And so last week, uh, Bruce walked us through the, the vexed question of gender fluidity. Next week, Ben will share with us some thoughts on singleness from the Bible. And today we're going to look at the topic of marriage. And before we even get on to what I think is a really positive biblical vision for marriage, it's worth just recognizing there are threats to marriage. And a thread that has woven itself throughout our culture over the last 50 years, which in many ways has undermined our kind of classical concept of Christian marriage. For example, In the 1960s, with the introduction of the contraceptive pill and the sexual revolution, that had an effect because um, it it separated or it became possible to separate the act of sex and the consequence of becoming pregnant. That connection just wasn't as tight anymore. And obviously, this would impact upon the institution of marriage. Uh, I was talking with a fellow uh, exactly seven days ago on those steps just out there. He was... Uh, one of those older, colourful, manly identities that you see around. And he was telling me about his parents. And he said, back in the day, young people would go to a dance, they'd fall in love, they'd get in bed, then they'd get pregnant, and then they'd get married. Now, that was how he came to exist, as far as he understood it. He wasn't commenting on it positively or negatively. That was just the way that it seemed to work to him back in those days. Go to the dance, fall in love, get pregnant, get married. Now, not exactly the Christian ideal, fair enough. But once the contraceptive pill was introduced, then that old way of things working was going to change. Then um, in the 1970s, no-fault divorce was introduced into Australia, which made it more legally straightforward to exit out of marriages. And in the years and decades following, the divorce rate went up. More recently, the numbers are interesting. According to McCrindle Research, the marriage rate has been slowly declining in recent decades, but as our population grows, there are still more weddings now than there was a decade ago. In fact, we hit peak weddings in 2012 when there were 123,000. 
The total number of divorces has been declining uh, recently. There are fewer now than at any time in the last 20 years, as both the divorce rate and divorce numbers are declining. And whilst one in three marriage ends in divorce, those marriages are lasting longer than they were two decades ago. But it's hard to feel completely buoyant by those figures because any divorce is painful, isn't it? As many of us know from first-hand experience. With 77% of Australian couples cohabitating before getting married, you'd imagine there are lots of Australian couples who never actually get married. And this just sort of adds to a thread that has slowly chipped away at a kind of rich biblical picture of marriage. And then you just chuck in trivialised TV shows in which people get married before they even meet and the horrific incidents of domestic abuse and our own proclivity to neglect our marriages and perhaps difficult spouses, genuinely difficult spouses and genuinely difficult situations. And you might find it difficult to feel positive at all about this profound human relationship. Jerry Seinfeld, again, he expressed his doubts about marriage this way. He said, to me, the thing about marriage is I can't believe how often it happens. I mean, I like the idea of it, but I can't believe how many people are meeting people that they want to see every day, every single day, day after day, every day. That should happen, you know, three or four times in the whole century. Well, for better, for worse... It happens a whole lot more than that. So what is this positive vision the Scriptures have for marriage? Well, the opening uh, pages of Scripture have, I think, it's immensely positive vision of this God-given institute that we call marriage. But something you may not have thought about in the second chapter of the Bible, even as it was read to us, is the astonishing and unconcealed admission that something was not good. Have you noticed that before? In Genesis 1 and 2, those twin accounts of the creation of the world, whether you understand them as literal or figurative or some kind of a combination of both, where God forms the universe and then fills it with all kinds of wonderful things like planets and suns and water and dry ground and birds and fish and vegetation and all kinds of animal life where after each act of creation, he pronounces what he has made as good. There is a frank disclosure that something is not right. Can you remember what it is? Amongst all the marvel and splendor of all that God created, what was not good? Well, it's there in verse 18 of chapter 2, isn't it? It was simply that the man was alone. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now that is frank, stark and startling. Before what we call sin entered into human existence, there was a problem and it was the problem of loneliness. And friends, that is remarkable because the man was surrounded by all manner of creatures to keep him company. I mean, have you ever wondered which animal you would like to spend the rest of your days with? Giraffes, they're very handy at at uh, getting to those hard-to-reach sort of places, aren't they? They're not much good at conversation. At least with the orangutans, they move like us, but they leave their hair everywhere, don't they? And uh, you might be thinking, gee, that sounds not that different to my husband. You might even be thinking, 
It doesn't look that much different to my husband. Not only was the man surrounded by all manner of creatures, moreover, he was in an open and unfettered relationship with God as we were all created to be. And still the text says it was not good for the man to be alone. Something was missing. Now that is a frank, stark and startling admission. And so the woman was created, somebody who was like him and yet not identical to him. And together there was unity, they were one. And there was also diversity, they were male and female. Now that actually is very profound because what these opening pages of Scripture are describing for us is not just the first marriage, but a way of understanding God as well. Just as in the Godhead, what Christians call the Trinity, there is diversity. You remember there's Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So in humanity there is diversity, there is male and female. Just as within the Godhead, that Trinity, there is unity, the three persons are within the one united being of God. There's not three separate gods. So there is unity within humanity in that marriage. Look at verse 24. As man leaves his father and mother, a new family is created and the two become one. So being made in the image of God does not just mean that each individual human bears the imprint of God upon their souls, which they certainly do and which gives each of us infinite worth, but only together as male and female together do we reflect the diversity and the unity within God himself, who is Father, Son and Spirit. And so the first thing about the biblical picture of humanity in general as male and female, and marriage in particular, is that it reflects God in a really profound way. The second thing we see from this picture as God creates a woman to accompany the man, is that marriage is a foundational solution to human loneliness, to the need for companionship. And you might have noticed that God did not uh, create someone identical to the man, uh, you know, not, a, not someone he could kick a football around with, who'd have roughly the same size and strength and other characteristics. It's not a buddy relationship, but a marriage relationship. That's the foundational answer to the human condition of being alone. Now let me say right at the outset, it is not the only answer to the human condition of loneliness. Thank God for friendship. Because all of us, married, single, whatever, need good friends. And you know that um, marriage is not the only answer to that uh, human condition of loneliness. Because Jesus was the most complete human who has ever lived, as Emily said earlier. And obviously he's a single man. And so it's going to be very important for us all, single, married, whatever, to hear the Bible's take on singleness next week. But because marriage is presented as a foundational answer for human companionship, that also means the desire to be married is a legitimate longing. To miss being married, if you have and you are no longer, is an okay thing. It's okay to want to get married. To have that sort of yearning and that sort of longing is not an ungodly thing. And so we've seen, uh, firstly, how marriage reflects the unity and the diversity 
of God. We've seen how it's the solution to the human need for companionship. It's also the vehicle for bringing new humans into the world and raising them in society. Now ask yourself the question, how are humans going to carry out the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1 to be fruitful and increase in number? Are they just going to procreate like wild animals who don't care for their young? Of course not. Do you know how high maintenance human offspring are? Of course you do, right? And marriage is the context for the bringing of children into the world. I want you to listen to how the introduction to the marriage service puts it. And I'm sure you would have heard these words before. Marriage is a gift from God for human well-being and for the proper expression of natural instincts and affections with which he has endowed us. It's talking about sex and intimacy. It's a lifelong union in which a man and a woman are called so to give themselves in body, mind and spirit and so to respond that their union, from their union will grow a deepening knowledge and love of each other. In the joys and sorrows of life, in prosperity and adversity, they share their companionship, faithfulness and strength. Okay, that's talking about companionship. In marriage, a new family is established in accordance with God's purpose so that children may be born and nurtured in secure and loving care for their well-being and instruction and for the good order of society to the glory of God. And so you see from that that marriage is fundamental to God's design for humanity, for sex and companionship and for the raising of children for the good order of society. And can I say very briefly, and this is not to replay old scripts or rip scabs off old wounds, this is why I actually don't think Christian opposition to same-sex marriage is necessarily stupid or mean-spirited. It certainly can and has been expressed meanly. But you can see why a marriage between a man and a woman reflects the unity and diversity of God in a way that a union between two members of the same sex just doesn't. And you can further see that if the original intention of the Creator is for children to be raised by those parents who brought them into the world biologically, then a same-sex marriage severs that natural connection. Now friends, it's not my business or your business for that matter to tell anyone outside of the church how to live their private lives. But if we're talking about instituting an arrangement that reshapes the family unit, the basic building block of society and which flattens out the diversity of the genders in relationships, then it's not stupid to say, hang on, hang on, just wait a minute before we do that. Now, we've seen how the biblical picture of marriage reflects the diversity of God. Uh, We've seen how it answers the quest for human companionship. We've seen how it provides for the birthing and nurturing of children for the good order of society. And lastly, it serves a typological function, which is a fancy way of saying it just teaches us more stuff about God. And when you look at a human marriage in which a husband loves his wife sacrificially and in which a wife gives herself to her husband, we're supposed to see something of God's love for his people and Christ's sacrifice for his bride, the church. Now, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 says this, Husbands, you love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what you do, husbands. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. 
Still, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Very interesting couple of verses, not the least of which is because the Apostle Paul quotes our key passage of Genesis 2. But you can clearly see from there that a husband's sacrificial love for his wife is meant to reflect Christ's sacrifice for his people, for the church, for us. And a wife's respect for her husband is meant to reflect the honour and the respect that we, as the church, give to Christ as our saviour. Marriage has this typological function. It's meant to point beyond itself to illustrate the love that God has for us all. Now that might be great, and you're saying to yourself, sounds awesome, Scott, but it's a bit of an ideal picture, isn't it? I mean, heck, it's from Genesis 1 and 2. That's before sin spoiled everything, including marriage. What does marriage look like this side of the fall from Genesis 3, when the disobedience our first parents brought sin and death into the world? Well, that is a good question, isn't it? Because uh, you scan through Genesis 3 and right away you see the impact of human disobedience. There's firstly an impact um, upon the relationship between humans and God. You remember the humans hide from God in the garden there. They're ashamed. And then you see the relationship between the humans break down between the man and the woman. The man who had first abdicated responsibility in the face of temptation, now turns on his wife and blames her and thinks to yourself, how often has that played out since then? Where men have uh, failed to take responsibility for things and then blamed others when those things go pear-shaped. And then later in the chapter, we see that a power struggle will ensue between the man and the woman. Her desire will be to overpower her husband but he will rule over her. And again, how often have we seen manipulation and an overbearing harshness infect marriages? So you think it might be fine to look positively at marriage, a Christian marriage from Genesis 1 and 2, but how, Scott, can you possibly be upbeat about it after Genesis 3? Well, I think my answer is because the Scriptures continue to be upbeat about marriage. At the end of chapter 3, the, did you notice the people stay together? Adam and Eve stay together under the gracious provision of God. And throughout the Old Testament, people continue to marry. And we hear uplifting injunctions in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs to enjoy the wife of your youth and to be satisfied by her breasts always, which is a much racier way than I'd put it. And, and we heed cautious warnings against adultery and emotional manipulation and we see how horribly wrong it goes when even Israel's greatest kings take multiple wives destroying the ideal in Genesis 1 and 2 and so in many ways the Old Testament seems to keep wanting to make a red hot go of the kind of archetypal marriage pictured in the opening pages. And then we get to the New Testament and both Jesus and the Apostle Paul quote from Genesis 2, as we've just seen, as if to say, we're not giving up on this. We're really not. And instructions to wives and husband are, are scattered throughout the letters. 
But actually, any instruction to a Christian person about relationships is also an instruction to a Christian husband or a Christian wife about their marriage. And so there's lots of interest and there's lots of attention that's given to marriage. And perhaps the most succinct address on this whole topic comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, which says, Marriage should be honoured by all. So as we finish up today... How are we going to apply this particular verse to us all? Because it's not just an instruction that's given to married people. Look at it. Marriage should be honoured by all. Well, I've got two suggestions amongst many possibilities. And the first is by not idolising marriage, and the second is by not neglecting it. And so firstly, we don't honour marriage by idolising it. And it's very possible to idolise marriage as a married person by turning inwards, by only thinking of yourself and your spouse and your little tribe. What a small world you would live in if that was the limit of your concern. I want to say to married people here, if you look at your life as a married person or as a couple or as a family and there's no tangible service and there's no tangible inclusion or involvement or ministry to people outside your little tribe, then it's very possible you're idolising your marriage or your family. And that is a mistake and something worth changing. And it's worth remembering that your marriage will not persevere into the new creation. You won't be married in heaven, as it were. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22 or Mark 12? He said, in heaven we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. We will be like the angels. I don't exactly know what that means. And that might be a relief to some. It might be a sadness to others. But I presume it means something better than marriage awaits us all. But in any case, uh, these human marriages, they don't prevail into eternity. And so it's not worth making an idol of it in the here and now. And we really ought to share that love around. I have to say, I think it's equally possible to idolise marriage if you're a single person, um, thinking that only if I got married, if I just got married, that would solve all my problems. Or maybe looking back, when I was married, I had no problems. Now, thinking about marriage as the solution to all your problems is about as simplistic as thinking singleness is all about falling asleep on the sofa with the TV on. Seinfeld was obviously exaggerating when he was talking about vast decision-making bodies and committees in married life. But there is always one other person you have to consider in everything. And that means additional complexities, doesn't it? It means additional tensions as well as additional pleasures and joys. And it's possible to idolise marriage in your own mind by failing to account for those complexities and tensions either looking forward or looking back. But the greater way to dishonour marriage, I imagine, is to neglect it. So I do want to say to married people here today, don't neglect yours. We have thought about domestic abuse recently, um, which is clearly negative and destructive, but neglect can also dishonour and destroy your marriage. That's partly why I wanted to put before you a positive vision for marriage today. It's why we wanted to run those date nights with a purpose to help married people invest rather than neglect this seminally important relationship. 
Now, friends, I know there are some here who are in very difficult situations. Very difficult situations. And that might mean what I'm about to say seem very trite. Truth is, you're only responsible for your own actions and whatever is in your power to do. But here are some suggestions nevertheless for us all. Read the marriage books. I've got some I could give to you that would be useful. If you don't read, watch the marriage DVDs. See, there's no excuses, husbands. Take the marriage surveys. Take initiative for organising a night out. Take initiative for going to bed early to make love or to cuddle. I know it's difficult when the Tour de France is on. Look each other in the eyes and say, I love you before heading out to work or heading out for whatever is before you in the day ahead. Express gratitude specifically for what your spouse contributes to the relationship. Both my guys' groups, uh, we've spent the whole term thinking about marriage because there's lots to say. And at one point I made all of us pray to God out loud, each man giving thanks for his wife for something specific. Because I knew it wouldn't happen any other way and I knew that I had to lead by example. And none of them saw this because we were praying, but my eyes welled up because it was really moving to hear what they appreciated about their wives. For God's sakes, married people, say those words to each other. Do that little job around the house that your spouse hates or that will make a big difference to their day. Tell them you love them every day. If they like presents, buy them a present, not because you're in trouble, but because they like presents. Pray for them. Pray with them. Help them get to church. Get help if you need to in what area, area of your marriage you need it. Say sorry. Be kind. So we finish up today. We've looked at an ideal of Christian marriage from Genesis 1 and 2 that remains intact thereafter, but it is under threat for all sorts of reasons. Now, we can fail to honour marriage by idolising it. We can also fail them by neglect. Friends, let that not be us. And let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, God, I want to thank you for making us human, male and female, in your image. Thank you for relationships, friendships. Thank you for marriage as well. Help us not to idolise it, whether we're married or single. Help us not to neglect it either. Pray for the marriages of this church, that they might be growing in strength and depth. For many reasons, not the least of which is that we might look upon them and learn something of your great love for us all. In your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.